You're listening to STEMcast, brought to you by McGill iGEM. Today we have the privilege of speaking to Dr. Sandra Hoffman, an associate professor in bioengineering bone at the Orthopedic Biomechanics Research Group at Eindhoven University of Technology. Dr. Hoffman obtained her Master's in Pharmaceutical Sciences from the University of Basel, Switzerland in 2002, then achieved her PhD with distinctions at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in 2007. Dr. Hoffman specializes in creating a human cell-based 3D in vitro model of bone, which allows for studying interactions between various environmental factors and their effects on cells. So first, we just want to kind of ask you, for our listeners um, with no background at all in your research, can you break down how your research works in about three sentences or so, and what you intend to do with this research and what it would potentially be used for in the future? Yeah, so if I have to explain what I'm doing, I usually tell people that I'm growing tiny little bones in the lab, and I do that from human cells. So people can donate bone marrow or peripheral blood, and we extract cells and then grow these cells into little bone tissues. And with these bones, we we then study how bones actually work. Because if you imagine, how can we actually study a bone that is within an animal or a human being, we can actually not look at the cells without having to destroy the animal or the person. So having such in vitro models where we can look at how cells behave, how they react to drugs, to environmental factors, uh, seems quite useful so that we can understand how our bones work. Yeah. Yeah, that's super. Um, My colleague Isabel, she mentioned that you first got your degrees in pharmaceuticals um, in pharmaceutical science, and you start, you worked a lot with silk fibron biomaterials. Um, so how did you go from pharmaceuticals to um, creating environments to test bone cells and how they, how they work? Yeah. So basically when bones are fractured, in most cases, they heal completely by themselves again, but there are some cases where bone fractures don't heal by themselves. And there you have to use a material that helps bridge the two gaps in a, in a fracture. And uh, we looked at silk fibrin as a potential biomaterial to that. And also silk fibrin by itself is not promoting regeneration. So we looked at whether we can modify silk fibrin and uh, use it as a drug delivery system. And so that already had to do quite a bit with bones. And then we also figured out that, well, if we used such a spongy material made out of silk fibrin, we can actually, we we were interested, can we grow bone cells in it? And that that way we kind of got to these 3D model tissues. Yeah, that's really cool. And so, yeah. Yeah. And, And it was a bit step by step that we figured out, okay, we have a biomaterial that the cells like, so the cells can grow on it, they can become bone cells. And then at some point we figured, well, in bones, mechanics play a huge role. So we, I, I then started during my postdoc to look into bioreactors that can apply mechanical loading, for example. So it kind of went a bit step by step. And we, each time I figured, oh, this part is missing. So I tried to make a step towards yeah, learning about the parameter that I thought was still missing. Yeah, and that's really important because I think with bones, especially, there are a lot of external factors that shape the behavior of the cells within them. So if you have a lot of high stresses, a bone can react in certain ways. I know that there are ways that bones react, especially in women, if you have like low estrogen levels, that they become less dense. So stimulating those kinds of things in vitro can help us learn a lot you talked a little bit about silk fibroin being used as like almost a scaffold for bones. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what kind of structure within the bone does that imitate? And when you're working with, I'm just a little bit curious about this, when you're working with bones, is it similar to like small organoids or organoid systems that we have in like other labs? I'm wondering. Yeah, <laughs> all good questions. So um, the first one, so the silk fibroin is is pretty much like a kitchen sponge, the way we use it as a scaffold. So it has a 90% porosity. So most of it is actually air or liquid, and only 10% is silk fibrin. And it just, in my views, it's just 
offering an environment for cells to grow in the pores that it has. And we can vary the size of the pores. Um, and it does, to some extent, resemble the trabecular bone structure. So inside our uh, long bones at the ends, we have, for example, a lot of trabecular bone. And sometimes these trabecula are even oriented uh, with respect to the mechanical loading that they perceive. So in that sense, it does, to some extent, resemble an internal bone structure. Now, when we talk about the bone models, we're more into um, actually going direction organoid. I think it depends a bit what kind of definition you apply for organoids. But basically, within the pores of the scaffold, the cells can self-assemble into little tissues. And these would then, because of the self-assembly, they would, we, we also call them organoids. I think it depends a lot a bit, yeah, on the definition in the sense that an organoid, whether or not it recreates the developmental steps. And so we have one means where we show that we have an organoid of woven bone. So we can recreate the developmental steps of how we get from a progenitor cell to a bone cell, to an osteoblast and even osteocytes yeah. in an organoid. Um, where we are not yet is organoid for trabecular, like real trabecular bone or mm -hmm. um, lamellar bone, where we actually have the collagen in the extracellular matrix in an aligned state. So this is something that just hasn't been achieved yet yeah it would be nice to it would be really nice right because these are such complex structures and I actually I like know kind of just like some very base things about bone from like my anatomy classes so um for any listeners just to clear things up trabecular correct me if I'm wrong please but trabecular is the compact bone that forms on like the outsides on the plates it's kind of the casing and then lamellar bone I believe is the spongy section no, it's the it's the other way around. It's so the other the, way around. The, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The the outside is the lamellar bone. It's yeah. cortical bone and uh, lamellar bone because the the, the collagen fibers yeah. are aligned in uh, yeah. lamella, yeah. and inside okay. it's the trabecular bone that is a bit spongy like. Yeah. yeah. I'm a little rusty on that. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Don't yeah. worry. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I think we'll go kind of. We'll go more into your research questions later, but we're just going to ask you a little bit about your job and your research. Yeah, you so um, like a lot of this research is really important. You know, um, in some of your articles, it's it's mentioned that a lot of this research is used to study kind of the external effects that the environment can have on bone, what how aging can have on bone. Um, where do you see this being applied and, and how do you stay motivated in your job to like, keep researching bone um, and, and the effects that other things have on it. Yeah, I, I, I have a number of reasons why I, I, I like this field and I'm, well, I'm, I'm still curious because I think there's such a lot of things that we don't understand yet. And there are also quite some bone diseases. And I mean, osteoporosis is the most well-known and most common. And even there, we don't have a good sense of how to stop it. Uh, well, we can we can stop the disease progression, but we cannot really turn it around because we don't understand these processes. We know it's because of estrogen depletion. You can have osteoporosis in in, in elderly women, but somehow we 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 cannot turn it around. Mm -hmm. So. And another factor that I think is quite interesting to me is, for example, that I hope by, by using these in vitro models, we can hopefully at least reduce a number of animal experiments where we usually have to look at things in animals. And I hopefully we can do that in human cells and ideally even personalized like from because people react differently. We know osteoporosis can have different reasons. It's different in male versus female. So if we if we could have some individual cells and then see what is the best treatment option for such a person. And also, we still don't know a lot about the underlying molecular and cellular mechanisms in, in many of the diseases that are present in bone. And 
I would say, well, osteoporosis can is already pretty bad, but there are some bone diseases that are really affecting the quality of life of those that are affected by them tremendously. And in most of these diseases, it's even more complicated to actually have an, even an animal model to study the disease, which is why so few people are doing research in, in that direction. So I hope if our models at some point are good enough that we could take cells from these patients and see, well, how well do they react to mechanical stimulation? Would it help them if they exercise, for example? Can we see that in our model and give them advice how to behave or how to eat or what kind of drugs to take? That's excellent. That's, so that's, yeah, go, sorry, go yeah, ahead. That, that's, yeah, that's research wise, but also of course my, my job actually has kind of very, well, very nice parts. So for example, I do supervise students and I think that's another thing that I really like is that, well, always it's always for a certain amount of time, but you're for a certain amount of time, you're actually at the side of a, be it bachelor student, master student, PhD student, postdoc, they're, they're all in different states of their life. They're, they have different goals for some, it might be to pass, for others, it might be to decide what they want to do in their next career step. And you're kind of a mentor at their side and you can help them or support them in showing up what their options are, helping them find out what they're good at and what they like to do. So I think that's also something that I, it took me a way to realize that this is part of my job, but it's actually one of my favorite parts of, of the job that I'm doing right now. And I also like to think about uh, my next grant proposal. So like developing ideas, what would be worth studying next? And uh, yeah, so it's something that I really like to do. I often have not enough time with thoroughly, but it's something that I like to do. That's that's excellent. And so kind of just like continuing, continuing off that, like, Currently, I guess you're you're re working on your research and you're also working on with your students. So if you were to like go through your day as a researcher, could you explain like what your most what you think your most important skills are to have as a researcher and also as a mentor, as a grant proposer and all these different kind of like jobs that you're handling? Yeah, good question. I think, um, well, curiosity. Mm -hmm. empathy towards people I would say and also just critical thinking like and in the sense to I, I feel like sometimes I pretend to my student that I'm stupid and ask them questions so that they learn how to justify why they're doing things yeah so I, I sometimes they, they look at me and are a bit like does she really not know that but it's not <laughs> that I I don't know but I want them to explain it to me because I think communication mm -hmm. and explaining something to someone helps also in 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 the understanding mm -hmm. um well I, there there are also parts of my job obviously that I don't like as much we have many well meetings administrative things mm -hmm. uh, I well I basically work mostly on my computer these days so mm -hmm. um but I do like most the personal interaction. And I think the greatest things are when my students actually come to my office and are like, I just saw this in the lab. This was a result that I got. And I'm like, it's so cool that you actually share that with me and not just in a month from now when we have our next meet meeting scheduled or something. So seeing this excitement about something that finally worked out, that's, yeah, something very cool. Yeah, it must be really rewarding to be in this position of being an educator in the lab, but also an innovator where you're discovering, you know, what do I want to do with my projects and how can I pass this knowledge and this passion for other things along to other students. So it's really admirable that you're doing something like this and that you take so much, um, you take so much pride and joy, I think, out of just the way you talk about it out, out of like, you know, educating other students or undergrads or postgrads. So that's really nice to hear. Thanks. I, I, I must admit this doesn't, did not come to me naturally. I think when I got my first faculty position, I knew, well, I was supposed to bring in money to write grants. So I was behind the computer typing all day, thinking about what my next grant proposal could be. 
And I have this open door policy that when my doors open, people can actually come in and have a chat and whatever. And it's my doors when I'm not in a meeting, it's basically always open. Um, but at the beginning, I, at some point, I realized that I always felt like ah, someone else is at the door and they want to talk to me. And I felt interrupted because I was also a lot in my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And it needed me to realize that, well, student supervision is actually one of it's an essential part of my job because it's not me who's still standing in the lab doing the research, but they are actually doing that for me, with me, and and that I got to appreciate that they actually came to talk to me. So it took me a while to realize that because I think initially I I never said I want to become a professor. I was more like, I like what I'm doing and that's why I would like to continue. Yeah. And I did like I did like continue a lot, or often because I said I like to do the lab work. But at some point, you're actually not doing the lab work yourself anymore. You have someone else do that. Yeah. And I also missed it sometimes. And I still I, I'm always happy if I can go back to the lab and my students show me something. So and this is something that maybe I was just naive, but. It, it took me a while to realize that my job description actually had changed it significantly. Yeah. And I got to enjoy it. Yeah, that's really awesome, too. And you know what the funny thing is about teaching students and having that be a really big part of your job is that those people are going to be the same people who are in labs or in your position and, you know, like the next five to ten years. So I guess our next question is how can you see the fields changing? You know, you're educating all these new people. Um you can see innovation like around the around the horizon. How do you see the, your field particularly changing within the next 5, 10, 15 years? And, you know, what are you excited about in terms of the future of your field? Yeah, good one. Um, I think the biggest, at least to me, I think we now have many different models. But to me, they still need to be thoroughly validated. And yes, sometimes we see that the model is actually showing what's happening, uh, an effect of which we know it's also seen in vivo in a patient. But I'm always a bit like, can we be sure that this would also be the case for a new drug? Or is this, is this because we're giving in a cell culture, we're also creating an environment such that we get what we want to see because we know when we validate, we know what's happening in vivo. We add the same drug in the lab, and then we know where we want to go. Do we have too much influence, or is it really the system that is capable to predict? And this validation is essential for all organoids or in vitro ex vivo studies, because otherwise, if they're not predictive of what happens in vivo in a patient, what's their use? Like, are they complex enough to predict what happens in a human being? Or do we have to still rely on animal experiments that are way more complex? Like, are we, do we have the important parameters in our models that are actually determining what's happening? Mm-hmm. So, and I think, I, th- I think this is, this is basically what the field needs to prove next, that it was not just the hype showing that, well, we can have something that looks like a bone, but actually it behaves as a bone would. Right. In the situations where, you know, we're putting in a new drug and we're not really sure what it does, it can accurately model the behavior instead of us fine-tuning a model that gives us the response that we want based on prior data. So there is a huge difference. You're right. Yeah. And I I think as you mentioned also, like, Every every different person's bone cells will behave differently in a certain sense. So the, I guess there's also the question of how do you personalize it to the extent where you can predict how a drug will affect a patient in a specific way instead of just like a mass group of of different patients who have all their own different reactions. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so a question is, can we downscale it so that we can get, get to a high throughput system where we can just look at population data and say, let's have like hundreds of data on young men, young women, 
in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and so on, and compare those? Can we, for example, discriminate between gender? Can we discriminate between healthy and diseased? Well, there we also have to think about, is it in a disease, is it the cells that are in a diseased, or is it the environment that creates a diseased state in a cell? And I think even there, that's these are things we're not fully sure about. So I hope that this these models will actually help looking into that. Yeah. And then we could potentially see whether it's reversible or not. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, so I guess also we kind of want to talk a bit about like what the biggest challenges you're currently facing in, in this field and like like I, I guess we somewhat covered it, just like finding that validation and and finding the specific specificity. Um, but uh, like, what do you see as being the biggest challenge? I mean, it's it's fair of you to say validity, but um, being the biggest challenge in 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 using these structures for human beings and and like ch- like tackling the issues of shaping and strengthening and and making sure that these these synthetic bones are compatible with patients. Yeah, so I think there we have to discriminate what we want to use these in vitro models for. Like, Mm -hmm. is it to study the mechanism of a disease Mm -hmm. or is it that we want to use them um, to test drugs? And if it comes to validation, it's kind of like the way I see we can validate is so we can either look at a known drug effect and see whether we can recreate this in the lab, Mm -hmm. or we can use a new drug tested in our model and then test it in an animal, for example. But then I'm also like, yeah, one justification why we say we need in vitro models is because animal models are actually not that good representatives of the human body and then we compare it again to results that we obtain in an animal so it's a bit so basically for something that is completely new this question on how can we be sure when are we feeling safe enough to say it's fine to now put it into a patient yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think the models that we have, they probably help with the underlying disease mechanism or the, the acting of the, the, the drug. Um, but that's why I also say we can at best reduce animal experiments. But for example, to look at side effects of a drug, of a new drug, for that, we probably still need animal experiments where we need to see does it have an effect on the liver? How is a drug um, metabolized in, in the human body? Well, either we can do that at some point in a variety of in vitro models that we can run next to each other or in parallel, mm-hmm. um, or then we we still probably have to perform certain safety animal experiments at least. Yeah, for sure. And one thing, I'm just going to follow up on this a little bit. I think when you're talking about data sets, you know what we use and how we validate which data we draw from, how we segment certain aspects of the human population. We say, oh, we're going to look specifically how this disease affects women, or we're going to look at how this disease affects people in the general population, or we're going to look at animals. All kinds of data that you use will at least invariably introduce some kind of skew in it, right? So, you know, I think animal models are not always good representations of human models because our bones behave very differently. So if you look at the bones of a bird, they're definitely not at all like ours. Um, But when we're looking at trying to get the most accurate sets of data possible, what are some strategies that you implement or what are some things that you consider when you're analyzing and when you're looking at what to compare your models to? So what, what we try to have in our models is some kind of a modularity. So basically, I mean, one advantage as well as disadvantage of in vitro models is that they are less complex than than the real situation. But it also means that they help us better to find which parameters have the most, the, the biggest influence on the system. And I think in that way, we can try to see 
to, to find out those parameters, to separate them from all the possibilities that are there. And for example, if we see that, or, or as we know, mechanical stimulation has a big influence on how bones behave, then basically we can add that as a module to say, well, then we do need mechanical stimulation also in our in vitro models. And the good thing is that you can do this in a rather controlled way. So you can use computational uh, simulations, for example, to calculate what is it that the cell in this specific position actually does feel or sense when we do this kind of loading. So we can do this in a very controlled way compared to the human organism, but yes. we can then, of course, extrapolate. And then we can hopefully look at these parameters that have the biggest influence um, in a more complex system. Yeah, I have, sorry, this is really interesting to me. I have two, I have two follow-up questions and then I'll let Megan take <laughs> her question. I've been sure. her off for a while. Okay, so one of the questions is, you know, this is a fun one, I think. One thing I remember I watched probably when I was a kid on YouTube was that they were thinking many years ago that they could, you know, someone uh, irreversibly damages their bone in some kind of accident and they need, it's not sufficient to have uh, a cast. They need like some kind of replacement or some kind of replacement yeah. tissue. And what they talked about in this video is that they were thinking about how to make artificial bones by like creating casts of the patients or by looking at like MRIs and then putting the bones in some kind of like bioreactor shaker to induce those mechanical stresses. Where we are right now and then where we are to the day where we're like making bones for people out of bioreactors, how, how far do you think we are off from that day? And like, what are the biggest challenges that come? What are some of the biggest hurdles? What are some of the biggest what ifs or the biggest steps that we have to take in that pathway? I would say timing and costs. Like at least with bones. Um, and with costs, I mean also what is what is it worth to the society to pay? Mm -hmm. uh, because especially with bones, you know, if you have a huge fracture, let's say half of your leg is actually damaged, still there are options to fix also with metal implants, etc. Um they might not be optimal for the patient, but, you know, the patient will continue to live and with a, let's put, with some quality of life. Uh, the bone field is different in that sense from, let's say, the heart field, where you actually know if this cannot be saved, then the patient is dead. So it's dead. So basically we have to, as a society, also to think about, like, what is it worth us to pay for a regrown leg mm -hmm. once mm -hmm. we would be able to achieve that? We're, we're yeah. very far away from that. But if we were able, the costs would be very high. Mm -hmm. So would we be willing to pay that just that someone doesn't, for example, need a wheelchair? Right. And that's also or an artificial joint leg, etc. So there are alternatives uh, that are pretty good. And I think another thing is also um, the timing. It's basically, if, let's say you have a big motorcycle accident. Well, you cannot wait for someone to regrow a big piece of bone in the lab. Yeah, yeah. Even if they were able to do that, it's not something you plan ahead. Maybe with cancer, where you need to take away cancerous tissue that needs to be replaced. So I believe when we talk about regeneration, what we need is a smart biomaterial. Mm -hmm. It's a biomaterial that you can basically take off the shelf and implant it into the patient. And it's smart in the sense that it can tell the cells that of the patient that are there what to do with the biomaterial, like how to, to grow in it and produce new bone, for example. Mm -hmm. So it needs to be an instructive material and my dream, ideally, is that it takes into account whether we're having a patient that is 20 years young, healthy, or someone who's 80 years heavy smoker and not mm -hmm. who does not have a high regenerative capacity. Mm -hmm. And maybe we need two different materials for the different patients to instruct their cells. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's more what I believe for fracture healing yeah. is also a 
an approach that we can hopefully pay for because yeah. having a material that you can take off the shelf or in my view, maybe 3d print. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that these are options that I consider. Yeah. Practical. Achievable. Yeah. Achievable yeah. and also accessible yeah. too, right? Like if we have, yes. if we're making bones in the lab, that's probably going to be very expensive and yeah. it's going to be the wealthiest of people who can get access to treatments like that. So you're right. A biomaterial is a lot yeah. more versatile. Right, Megan? Yeah. Yeah. We, we can dream about that, but it's not yeah. so reasonable. No, yeah. 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 Do you see silk fibrone um, maybe playing a part in that as that biomaterial? Because already you're using the, you're using the pores as like a way to grow stem cells. So is there a way that you can, I guess, prepare it so that it, instead of, growing stem cells is kind of instruct it kind of like almost forms like a bridge or or like you're using it now as a scaffold for the bone cells in a patient to grow over and to continue growing with um I don't know I I can imagine that it could work mm -hmm. but for that we need to know the exact cues that the body needs so that we could modify the material such that it has these cues because silk fibrin by itself is not very it's it's, it's it doesn't have doesn't have the same mechanical properties as bone so it's not supportive because it's it's acting like a sponge um it does not differentiate the cells by themselves by itself so it's not osteoinductive but we can modify it to become osteoinductive mm -hmm. so it is one of many Somehow I hope that we're still getting, like it's a protein similar to the main extracellular matrix protein in bones. So similar to collagen, it has some advantages over collagen, but it would be even nicer if we could have aligned collagen 3D printed yeah. with the right mechanical properties. So the closer to real bone, the better, I think. But if yeah. we're not able to do it with the collagen, then, well, silk is an option, but I... I believe in people that do material science that they can still do better. Yeah. Yeah. And you're trying to integrate these, uh, you're trying to integrate these bone-like structures and these signals. So like one thing that we looked at when we were doing a little bit of background research is you're thinking about RGD sequences and motifs. And I believe that's for integrants, yep. right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. But yes, for integrants and the formation of, you know, uh, junctional context complexes and the alignment of collagens and other things like that. So, you know, what kinds of cellular markers are you looking at? How are you looking to make this more reflective of the collagen and the ECM that we have with bones right now? Um, so adding the RGD sequences was something that we did like 20 years ago, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then we actually figured that the cells do like the silk fiber and that much that RGD sequences are not needed because oh, wow. the cells can... We, we wanted to improve the cell attachment to the material, but it was actually not needed. So yeah. somehow wow. the cells, yeah. So we stopped adding that because it was easier just to use the fibrin mm -hmm. the way it was well. naturally. Yeah. 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 Well, that's really cool. And then another question yeah. I have, you know, one thing that you talked about when you're modeling is that a really big part, I think, of all modeling of any kind of scientific structure or any kind of mathematical model even it's just the weighing of variables and figuring out what is most important and what isn't most important so one really interesting thing i saw come out of machine learning recently actually is that they've figured out all these really similar things so they're making these really good models of neurons now they're making these really good models of enzymes because machine learning is able to really quickly prioritize or deprioritize or know which things are important so with the integration of like machine learning into the scientific field as a whole, you know, how do you see that affecting and impacting your field down the line? I hope it reduces the amount of experiments we have to carry out <laughs> so that, that we actually need to do some few dedicated experiments where we have a strict knowledge on what our input output parameters and that we actually can, can identify the parameters by having to do fewer experiments. So it would also save us quite a bit of money, actually. Yeah. And that is despite me saying that I like to do lab work. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it, it, there are just too many options. See, for every biomaterial, you can modify it in so many different ways. 
And if you combine just two or three biomaterials to a new one, you again have so many options and the cells can see these differences and react differently. And the same you have with the cells. We know different donors behave differently. So we, the, the variety of possible experiments are so endless that we cannot carry them out all by hand. So we need a tool basically that can help us sort out the yeah the important parameters. Yeah, so also um, like in these different models, right? I saw some mentioning of like the geometry of the scaffold also matters. How do you determine mm -hmm. what geometry to use, what factors to include? The, how do you currently decide on what the important parameters are without necessarily an AI telling it for telling you exactly what they are? Well, uh, we're not doing well there. <laughs> I would say <laughs> better. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> no. The, the, so the thing is that we use a sponge that has pores, and we know the pore size distribution. So we know we have irregular pores right now that some are more round, some are circular, some have edges, some don't. And we know the size distribution, um, but we have like everything everywhere. And um, well, I, ho I hope that people that do 3D printing on the size range of a typical cells will actually be able to print exact 3D three-dimensional geometries mm -hmm. such that we can look at how, and I mean, some, some other groups do that. So it's, it's just, that's why, why I'm saying we're not doing well because others are actually doing that in a way more fashionable way these days by using 3D printed scaffold with very exact geometries. And they look at if we, if we have pores that have a round shape, how do the cells react and how do they react if we have a triangular pore uh, pore shape I've, I've seen it mostly in in like two and a half d like with a cylinder of a triangular shape but i i yeah uh, the next step is to do that all in 3d and then figure out okay the cells that are more inside the edge behave different than the cells that are further away or they are under more tension than those that are in, in, in a different geometry mm -hmm. or geometrical environment. And that's what I also hope that at some point we actually can print implants with not just the right outer shape, but also the inner geometry, such that maybe the geometry is even enough instruction for the cells, such that they know what they should do and whether they should deposit a material or remove it from a certain space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's and 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 like you mentioned, there's like a whole bunch of factors that are outside of the porous material, like the mechanical rigor and like how do you set up the like bioreactors to simulate that experience of being in an actual body more, I guess, as precisely as you can, or how do you do that as best as you can? <laughs> yeah, it it's it's a good one because I think. So right now, in most cases, we're still building up bone, mm -hmm. but in the body, we, bone is there and we actually have a homeostatic state. Mm -hmm. So I think there we need to differ because we, what we know by now pretty well is how do we mechanically stimulate the cells in a bioreactor system such that they produce, such that the cells become osteoblasts or even osteocytes mm -hmm. and such that the cells produce an extracellular matrix that is similar to bone. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, once we have real bone, we also have osteocytes that are embedded in their lacuna canalicular network. But that's very far-fetched of where we are, where we currently are. So I think there we definitely need to do more research to understand that because in bone, the way it's believed that mechanical loading is sensed by the cells it's mainly by the osteocytes in their lacuna canalicular system mm -hmm. and now if we don't have this lacuna canalicular system yet in our in vitro model how are we then loading the cells the way we do it is that we often uh, use the combination of experiments and computational models so we know this that we know for example the pores of the scaffold we know the bioreactor and then we calculate 
where in the scaffold the cells would experience what kind of loading. So we look often at the wall shear stress, for example, and then we, if we have a scaffold, we actually know the cells that are at the bottom of the scaffold sense something different than those at the top. And then we can, within one scaffold, actually look at, and do they behave differently when they sense something different? Because it's the same cells in a similar environment, except for the, the wall shear stress that they experience. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we have one publication where we actually say, well, we can quite decently predict where mineralization will happen or under which wall shear stress the cells uh, promote the mineralization. Mm. Yeah, that's, I, I mean, still, I guess, a long way to go, um, obviously, with every yeah. research. <laughs> um, but it yeah. seems like you guys are making quite good headway. Um, I think also we were just wondering if if we've talked a lot about the health healthcare system and and modeling pa patients' bones and potentially this is still kind of far away away. Um, mm -hmm. um, do you see this technology maybe being used outside of the tech field or the the health tech field? Like, are there potentially like, I don't know. I'm just thinking of industrial, some, like potentially yeah, industrial. Like, like if you're using bone scaffold for building this, and it's potentially a more organic um, substitute instead of yeah, like, like concrete or I, I don't know if you I don't know if you see any future there or any other applications outside of using it to model um disease yeah I, I think it, it depends a lot on what we want to use it for because we have a variety of models right we have the the models where we try to imitate just bone physiology so bones in its healthy state how do they actually how do the cells really interact with each other? And can we recreate that in the lab? Thanks. That's more fundamental research. Yeah. But still, I, I believe that industry might be interested in such a model because through that type of research, we can find out where would we need a drug if we want to influence this homeostatic system in the good and the bad sense. Like also if it's diseased, what would be a worthwhile target for a treatment? So I think in that sense, um, industry might be interested in a, such a model once they know it's really representative of the in vivo situation. Yeah, for drug development then, and R&D. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, of course, the smaller and high throughput, the more interesting it becomes because it's also cheaper if we can run more samples. Um, I think the biggest issue is like rare diseases because that's not something where industry can get a lot of money out. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest, if you only have yeah. very few patients that will profit from it, it's a lot of costs that go into R&D yeah. and that's mostly going to stay probably with uh, close to universities and spin-offs just because they can acquire funding for rare diseases mm -hmm. and then well the, the the regenerative field well there is certainly a need of of such implant materials mm -hmm. um so there I, I i see i also see a potential use but again it comes back to when we learn how cells behave what are the parameters that react to the environments that influence their behavior um, that can also feed back into the, the development of an optimal implant material. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And it can feed back to how, how do, do we, for example, change the surface of an orthopedic metal implant yeah. such that it, it interacts better with the existing bones. Mm -hmm. That would also be an application that I see. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we have a lot, many more research questions are on our end. It was. Um, hmm. I think just one, one really quick one. Uh, you were talking about, you know, these 3D systems that take place in bones. They're very complex systems, right? You talked about uh, the canaliculi, these also like this in, in the lamellar bone, they're like the, 
I forget the name, like the Havrian canals or something where they have innervation or they have like, they'll have like the perfusion of blood and perfusion of nutrients. So when you're thinking about all this kind of stuff, where are our in vitro models like now? And then how can we move them up to go closer to what bones actually look like? It's a good one. Thanks. <laughs> and I, I'm happy that you asked that because I think otherwise I, I talked about like how that we simplify a lot. Um, when I talk about modularity, we also try to integrate, for example, blood vessel cells mm. when we think it's needed. We don't have to, but we could potentially add them. And another way, and these are another type of models that we're looking at are ex vivo models where we basically say, let's uh, take a bone from the slaughterhouse, for example, and we drill out small bone cores, trabecular bone cores, and keep them alive in the lab. Mm -hmm. And this way, we actually do preserve a lot of the complexity, and it's all already there. So it's not just that the cells first have to build up the extracellular matrix. It's already there from the beginning. The complexity, it's there, except for, well, you, of course, you disconnect from innervation, you disconnect from vasculature, but this, the respective cells are still there. And you can try to keep them alive for a while to study. So what happens if I now add a drug here? And you can do that from like meat production waste material, like bones from the slaughterhouse. And we sometimes also get bones from uh, the hospital when someone has uh, gets a new hip joint, for example, and they cut off the femoral heads, then we can sometimes get these bones and drill out these core bones from humans. Mm -hmm. Where What we have to keep in mind there is, well, usually they get a new hip for a reason. It's usually... Yeah, there's a skewed sample. Elderly people, um, they have an underlying disease with their, with their cartilage that they get... Uh, a new hip so we're not looking at healthy bone necessarily but we can increase the complexity that we have and sometimes we we think we do need the complexity over having a very simple in vitro system right yeah, yeah. super cool stuff Go how, how do you I'm, I'm just i'm not sure on the technicalities on keeping these complex systems alive how do you like how long can you keep them them alive and and what's involved in in keeping these systems running so that you can keep these more accurate measurements? Yeah, so the, the bone cores, I think people have been able to keep them alive up till roughly eight weeks. Um, you can improve the them, you can improve their viability by adding, for example, mechanical loading, because by doing so, um, for example, with perfusion, you will also pump in nutrients, for example, and take away waste products. Um, so it it supports the cells. On the other hand, one thing that we have seen is, for example, that the osteoclasts, they are dying pretty quickly in such a system. So if you want to keep bone resorbing cells, then you will have to add them yourself continuously. On the other hand, I think that's also a bit what happens in vivo, like the osteoclasts are not just always there resorbing. They're actually um, yeah, called by the osteocytes that sense, well, here's, no, here's too little mechanical load. So this piece of bone is probably not needed anymore. So they call monocytes to a specific site and tell them here, this piece of bone can be resorbed. Or we have a microfracture here, this piece of bone needs to be resorbed and replaced by a new bone so they're not constantly there so i think in vivo also you get new monocytes through the blood and in vitro we have to mimic that by adding new monocytes so that they can become osteoclasts mm -hmm. when the other cells are actually signaling that they are needed awesome yeah i, I think it's like just how our technology is evolving evolving so quickly it's it's all very exciting for us, especially with the fields we're in. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And I mean, I kind of want to get back to just to wrap up the the episode, just I want to get back to your mention on how you're you're constantly involved with students and you're and you're often seen as a mentor. What do you wish 
you knew about your field um, when you were an undergrad and and what do you wish I mean a lot of people like ourselves listening to this podcast are undergrads looking to go into sciences and looking to go into STEM more broadly um, and they're exploring themselves and figuring out how they're going to get to where they want to be and realize their goals and even just trying to figure out what their goals are um, what what do you often give as advice to your students that are in the same position? I I find this an extremely hard question. And I think my advice would be to just collect advice from many people and figure out what resonates most with you. Because we all have our opinions and our experiences and our preferences, and they might not be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... Many students don't see how how important they already are, or at least in my view, they are. So I often give students not a fully predefined project, but leave a lot open, mm-hmm. just a bit to test them. And I know it becomes uncomfortable for them, but I test them in the sense that I want to hear how they interpret it and how they what they come up with, with what kind of ideas they come up with. And this is not necessarily to to show them that they are stupid or that they don't know a lot, but it's more because I have my ideas, my thoughts, and it's very hard to go outside that. So it's actually very refreshing to have someone who comes in and says, why do you do it this way? Or have you never thought about that? And you're like, whoa, this is pretty obvious but I I really have not seen that so I really value people's thoughts a lot and I think there are many students that actually don't dare to speak their thoughts because they believe they might be stupid questions thoughts ideas and they don't want to look stupid Mm. whereas I think it's these thoughts are very very valuable and it's the same that we do Uh, yeah, just because you have a title in front of your name, yeah, yeah. It, it, you look at things from a from a specific point of view, but your point of view is not the only one, no only one that counts, and it's not necessarily the right one. It's so. But so I think it's very, very hard to believe that you have so much value, actually. Yeah. yeah. I think the most important thing. It's so so important to get perspectives from other people, and to see what other people are doing and be open to new modes of thinking, which is why we are so grateful to talk to you on this podcast and, you know, hear, hear from you also. So we do have to go. There is something at one, mm-hmm. but I wanted to say thank you so much for being here. This conversation was amazing and I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. I learned a lot today as well. So it was truly nice. I-